Hello and welcome to the Millennial Minimalist Podcast. I am your host, Kelly Foss, and together with my co-host, Lauren Morley, our mission is to help you simplify your life and live with greater intention. Together, let's live more with less. Hi, everyone. Today, we are talking about anxiety and how we can stay afloat in our uncertain world. And to lead this discussion, I am joined by licensed clinical psychologist, best-selling author, speaker, and famed TikTok therapist, Dr. Lauren Cook, to share insights from her latest book called Generation Anxiety, which releases on September 19th. In Generation Anxiety, she shares how millennials and Gen Z are considered two of the most anxious generations in history. And together we dive into the external and internal factors that cause us to feel anxiety and the ways that we can cope with them. Dr. Laura Cook explains that there are three main sharks in our lives that trigger us, which include our own minds, society at large, and other people. And together we discuss why it's important that we identify our anxiety triggers and work through the discomfort. Dr. Lauren Cook argues that we shouldn't avoid our anxious feelings, but rather recognize them and swim through them. And she shares self-care strategies to help us stay afloat. We also work through common societal and economic pressures that may be causing us to feel anxious, such as the pressure to achieve, influenced by hustle culture, the pressure to strive for perfection, amplified by social media, the pressure to always seem in control of our lives, and or the financial pressures in this time of inflation. Plus, we discuss how to ease our anxieties, such as by improving our nutrition and by unwinding unhealthy habits that keep us in cycles of worry and fear. Be inspired to swim through your anxieties, ease your feelings, and embrace the ride. I want to tell you, I am so excited to speak with you today because anxiety, I find, is just such a topic that is at the top of mind for most people. It is relatable. It's something a lot of us struggle with. You mentioned in your new book, Generation Anxiety, which is such a great title. <laughs> to oh, tell you that. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you see that title and you're like, I have to read this book because it is something that people talk about all the time. Everyone is struggling in some way. And as you mentioned in your book, you said that anxiety, it, it's inherent in all of us and anxiety is a muscle. And I found that really, really interesting and, and we'll get into it. But to start off, I wanted to ask you if you could briefly share your story, including how you live with an anxiety disorder and really what inspired you to help others through your writings, as well as through your new book, Generation Anxiety. Yeah, well, so good to speak with you today, Kelly. I'm so excited we're connecting. And, you know, to me, it was just so important to write this book because I was really seeing an epidemic in anxiety, especially through the pandemic. Anxiety was just going through the roof. And I was living my own experience of that. You know, I think something really refreshing about the field of psychology is that a, a lot of newer clinicians, myself included in that, we're being more transparent and real about our own struggles and what's drawn us to do this work. You know, before therapy was such behind closed doors. And I think sometimes that kind of perpetuated the stigma because it felt like it was something we do in secret was going to therapy. And really my goal, and I think a lot of other clinicians, the goal is like, let's open the door on like what therapy is and what it entails and who we are as people. And so I'm very open about my own lived experience with anxiety. I write a lot in the book about my particular phobia that I experienced, which is a metaphobia, which is a phobia of vomit, which is 
not such a fun thing to go through, but you know, it's amazing as I've been sharing about it. So many people have been saying, Oh my gosh, I really struggle with that too. Mm -hmm. Um, Phobias are actually the most common mental diagnosis of anything within even the anxiety umbrella. And also, it was really interesting to write this book, having a lot of anxiety about, do I become a parent? Do I want to enter that season of my life? Which is something a lot of millennials are, I think, really toying with right now. And so to write the book before I got pregnant and throughout my pregnancy, I was having to face my anxiety head on. So it was a real time of reckoning in my life. So it was just so fun to write this book, to share my experience and also to share with people, you know, the latest research on what works for anxiety and what doesn't work for treating anxiety. So I just hope this book is going to be able to to help a lot of folks out there. Yeah. And I had the pleasure of reading an early copy of your book. So thank you so much for delivering it. I'm going to be displaying it on my wall soon because I highlighted so many pages and I can't wait to just refer to those pages when people walk into my home. There's so much valuable information in your book. And in your book, you mentioned that millennials and Gen Z are considered two of the most anxious generations in history. Mm-hmm. And I was not surprised. I, I I read that and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. But then I'm like, that's really scary. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned going into the next season of your life. That means like settling down and having a child. It, it is kind of scary for us millennials. We, we're dealing with all these new pressures we didn't have in the past, mm-hmm. right? Financial pressures, the pressure through social media, hustle culture to do and to keep doing and to be, you know, a girl boss of all these things, all these pressures. And so in many ways, you kind of feel like, oh, can I go to the next step? And you feel all these anxieties. But when we throw out the word anxiety, a lot of people are like, hey, what does anxiety mean? And initially I thought to myself, oh, anxiety means a natural response to stress. That's what I was thinking in my head. And yeah, I'm right, but it's definitely more than that. And I I also read that it's it's kind of a natural feeling. It's a natural feeling that a lot of us go through. Uh, So I'm curious what, how you would define anxiety and what are the anxiety disorders that are out there? What are they? I I think there's quite a list. There is. Yeah. And you know, one thing I think is a really helpful kind of benchmark because a lot of people do ask, well, do I have an anxiety disorder? Am I just really stressed out? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think two of the key features to note is the worrying feel out of control because we all have worries, right? About our finances, the future, things like that. But does it feel like we can't contain it? Like our brain is just this hamster on a wheel that will not slow down. This restlessness keyed up on edge feeling are kind of classic hallmarks of something that might be an anxiety disorder. And then also with generalized anxiety, for example, it typically is present for at least six months to warrant a diagnosis. So I think that's helpful for folks to keep in mind because we can have a really stressful day, really stressful few weeks, you know, but is this something that is a whole way of living that we feel anxious all the time? Mm. And a lot of people who struggle with anxiety will tell you, I've been like this since I was a kid. I've been grappling with this. Now, it does look so many different ways, right? There's generalized anxiety, which is when we tend to have that worrying out of control. And that can be about anything and everything, or it can be something more specific. Sometimes that's something you can see more with OCD, where people can have very specific fears that they worry about. And it's really interesting because diagnostically, anxiety and OCD are in two separate categories of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. 
but I think there's a lot of overlap there. And then we can see panic disorder is, is common for folks, which is that very physical experience. And then the one thing I'll say that I think is really interesting is that I'm really noticing the surge of separation anxiety for my clients. Mm. You know, we think about separation anxiety as like the little kid who doesn't want to leave their parent. But I'm meeting a lot of college age, you know, young adults who are very worried about saying goodbye to loved ones. They avoid having conflict with people because what if this is the last time that I see my loved one? And I think that really directly correlates to all the chaos we're seeing in this world right now. People are feeling less secure in their world. So now our relationships feel that much more unsafe to us as well. Oh, wow. And maybe it's also because our parents are getting older. And so we're just like, oh, we only have so much time with them. So we want to be closer to them. And so when we're separated, we're like, oh, I should be with them. So there's this level of guilt that we get. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, we we were talking about the sand, sandwich generation, you know, as being more Gen X boomers, but like soon that's going to be us. That's the sandwich generation as millennials, certainly. Our parents are getting older and now we have children to take care of more often. So we're, we're starting to sandwich ourselves, you know? Mm-hmm. I also found that especially after COVID, people felt very anxious socially because they were living on their own or they were living with family or whoever they were living with, but they weren't really going, they weren't going out as much. And so when they were brought back into the real world, they're like, whoa, I don't even, this feels weird. Even, even myself, I'm extremely extroverted and social, yet I got back out there and I was like, ooh, this feels very close and I feel a little bit shaky. It was interesting. I was feeling those sensations. The social anxiety is so real. And I often say that, you know, our social skills are like a muscle. And if we're not using those muscles, it's like going back to the gym when you've been on the couch for a year, like walking on the treadmill is going to feel tough. You know, it's the same socially where it's like, oh, how do I like make small talk? How do I have a conversation with someone again? And I I still feel that myself too. I think it's really having ripple effects even now still. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I'm curious if you have any stats around how many, uh, the number of millennials or Gen Z generation, how many of those who suffer from anxiety suffer from an anxiety disorder, maybe just in the US and, or how does this compare to previous generations? Yeah, that's really, really good for us to talk about. So we know that right now here in the US, about 40 million plus Americans experience anxiety, which makes it the most common diagnosis. We see right now that about one in four people experience some kind of mental health concern. I would argue it could even be more like one in three, you know, just given that there's still stigma that prevents people from sharing. Like I was saying, within the anxiety umbrella, phobias are actually the most common. And if you think about people who have a phobia of spiders, blood, needles, things like that. But mm. something I write about in the book is that phobias can actually be quite debilitating for people when you do experience them. Um, and within the college age population and the young adult population and millennials, we saw mental health concerns go through the roof, both in terms of prevalence and severity. About nine in 10 people report that their mental health worsened during the pandemic. And I think we're still seeing the aftershocks of that. So we know that that people are really struggling. And something that I found really interesting when researching for the book, I looked a lot at the generational power index or GPI, and really looking at what are these generational events 
and how is it impacting people's anxiety? Now, what's really interesting is boomers, Gen X, millennials, they will all tell you, at least here in the U.S., that September 11th was the most prominent generational event to happen to them. But you think about these last few years, there's just been like one thing after another, the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd's murder. It's just been like one thing after another for these generations. And so it's understandable to me that we're seeing anxiety spike through the roof because it just, it's it's a lot. And not to mention climate change as well, which you're in Canada. I know with the fires in Canada this summer, that impacts you know our anxiety as well. And one quick thing, not to tangent too much here, but there's even been research to show that, you know, climate change and how it impacts the environment and the air we're breathing, they're seeing that there's an increase in depression in people who are in places that have more smog in their environment. So even that can be impacting our mental health. Wow. There are so many factors. (laughs) I was trying to think of what are some of the social and economic factors and the first ones that came to mind and maybe because in my social network, these are the things that really affect us. Uh, Number one, hustle culture, as I mentioned earlier, social Mm -hmm. media, the influences there, we're seeing how everybody else lives. And so we feel that we need, we're behind or we need to move faster every day or we're not good enough. And So we need to manage that. And then, of course, information overload is just coming at us constantly. There's so much pressure. And especially right now as a millennial, yeah, I'm 36. I'm not married, don't have kids yet. And it's like I'm not following this traditional path. And I definitely feel that pressure because a lot of people do here. That being said... I I don't find the majority of my anxiety there. I'm very at peace with myself in that regard. The anxiety I have is the hustle culture. In Toronto specifically, it's all about you live to work. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's unfortunate because mm-hmm. it's so important to create space to do nothing. I interviewed Celeste Headley recently and she oh, talks about- her. Oh, you love her? Good. Yeah, she's amazing. And she wrote a book called Do Nothing. And we recently released an episode and- It's so important. You're actually more productive if you take time to do nothing during the day, even if that's for 10 minutes here and there. So it's so important to take breaks. And I think that really helps me manage my anxiety. So like I'll go and meditate for a little bit. I'll go for a short walk, a short run, come back. And I just feel so much more refreshed. Mm -hmm. I'm actually, you're catching me at a very interesting time. So August is my busiest time in my career with the podcast, but also I manage a run in support of charities and I'm the race director and it, my race happens in 15 days. And it's crazy because <laughs> I spend the entire year planning this run. And so if you could imagine right now, there's a, a zillion calls and emails coming at me, but instead of thinking, oh my goodness, I have so much to do and I don't know what to do. I re- literally write down what is the highest priority right now? And that gives me peace of mind. And so when you cross it off during the day, you feel like, okay, well, I can go in today with ease because these are the most important. You know, mm-hmm. it's not life or death. You don't yeah. need to stress because by stressing, we're not going to get there any faster, right? Mm-hmm. So just got to chip away. That's why I try to tell myself mentally. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that. And yeah, I mean, I always come back to to like, what are our values? Because I don't know if if you're like this. I know I can get sucked into hustle culture myself and it can be so easy for me to get lost in the to-do list. 
and I have to pull out and remind myself like, okay, what are the the values that I hold for my life? What's bigger picture most important? And even asking that really big existential question of like, when I end my life, like, and I look back, like, how do I want to have lived my days? You know, I, I have to check myself and, and especially having a new son, I'm like, you know what, this is like precious time I can't get back. Like, do I need to respond to these emails right now? Like, mm-hmm. no, you know, and I think in this fast culture we have, I think it really can feel like, no, I have to do everything right now. And one thing I write about in the book is like, we actually, you know, God willing, like we do have time and like, let's slow down and enjoy today. It doesn't all have to get done right now. And so I'm grateful for you reminding of me of that too, as we're talking on a Monday morning here. <laughs> Yeah. And you know what? Stress and anxiety can show up in so many different ways. And, you know, there's the trigger, but then it's like, okay, what happens to you physically or mentally? I find that really interesting. And so in your book, I learned that that can show up in many different ways. It's like someone can be super stressed, but then put up a front and be like, okay, like I have everything in control when really they actually don't inside and they're struggling. You know, they're either depressed or they're burnt out. The house is a mess. (laughs) They're overusing alcohol, caffeine. They're not Mm -hmm. sleeping. That's something that I struggle with. Sometimes I'm so anxious that I don't sleep well and I stay up way too late. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I will be like, okay, but everything's fine. Everything's fine. It's like, no, everything's not fine. And you should address it and you should manage it. Yeah. Well, and I love that you bring that up because it was really important to me that we look at holistic healing, that it's not just from the neck up, because I think from a westernized lens, we can get very into, you know, the therapy and the cognitive piece. And that's all great. Like the mindset makes a difference. But anxiety is such a physical experience, right? It affects our sleep. It affects the research on the gut brain connection, I find so fascinating, like, our whole body is impacted by stress. So I really think we have to look at healing the whole body too, not just the brain. And you mentioned like with your run coming up, just the power of exercise in itself is so healing for anxiety. Like that's one of my core interventions for clients is to make sure they're moving their body because otherwise that toxic stress can get trapped like a ping pong ball in our bodies. And it really can make us feel so physically and then mentally unwell too. I like that you say that. Yeah, it feels like a ping pong ball inside your body. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, true. Not a, not a good one. Not a but... good one. No, I actually have a run club and I was asking everyone at the club why they run and everything was connected to de- de-stressing. It was, I do this because I want to de-stress. I do this because it's my only time of the day. Just get away from it all. Mm-hmm. And I found that fascinating. And actually on the Teach Me How to Adult podcast, you're recently on that podcast. It was so good. Awesome. They were yeah. awesome. You guys, it was such a great conversation. I should probably include it in my show notes as well. And (laughs) you mentioned in the episode that anxiety is a mental and physical experience. And you talk about your experience with an anxiety disorder and how you had physical symptoms like headaches and and nausea. And you share how your naturopath helped you heal your anxiety by improving your nutrition. So I'm hoping you can share a little bit more about the brain gut connection there. Oh, I I think this is so interesting. And I think we're just going to see more and more research come out about this. And it's really interesting too, even generationally, like what our grandparents did with their bodies, like how that affects our microbiome, 
really, really mind blowing. You know, the thing is, when it comes to this gut brain axis connection, most of the serotonin in our bodies, that chemical, that neurotransmitter that affects how you feel is housed in our gut, not our brain. Mm. And, you know, when we think about how cortisol affects that gut connection, cortisol can really make us feel pretty nauseous. It can make us feel pretty sick. And if we're having that just pumping through our bodies all the time, it's understandable why we feel so nauseous and unwell. And in fact, I have a lot of clients that they wake up and it's like, first thing they do, they're like gagging or throwing up in the morning. That's a big indicator that the cortisol in the body is really affecting that gut. It makes sense when you think about antidepressants and how they affect serotonin. And in turn, then people often start vomiting less and having less nausea. I find it really fascinating. But yeah, I will credit all day my naturopath for healing my gut because I was just having so many panic attacks. And if you have experienced panic attacks, you know, it's like they trigger easier the more you have them. And so I was just in a really bad cycle. We did like a total refresh. I did an elimination diet, um, taking out, oh my gosh, it it was kind of extensive to be honest with you. We took out the nightshades, so eggplants, tomatoes. Uh, I wasn't having um, any processed food or fried food, caffeine, no alcohol. I am a big sugar addict, so we cut out sugar. Doing all this for three weeks completely transformed my gut. I stopped having panic attacks, and I still, to this day, I have, sometimes I'll get anxious, but nowhere near where I would be like trembling, biting my teeth down, nowhere near that since I started working with my provider And so I'm a huge believer in it. And I really think it's good for people to learn about this. Just the food we put in our bodies, it can be medicine or it can Mm -hmm. be toxic. And alcohol especially, right? People don't want to talk about that because, you know, I I read a really great book on this called Quit Like a Woman. And she talks about how alcohol, it somehow has found a way to like caveat even in the wellness space, right? Like she talks about like, Gwyneth Paltrow, lover, Goop's amazing, but you know, these events were like, it's all about health and wellness and we're having a huge cocktail bar, right? And how how does that really fit into things when we know alcohol is so inflammatory with anxiety, right? So it's it's starting to shift those conversations because what we do put in our body, I believe, and the research shows it too, makes a huge difference with our anxiety. Wow. Yeah. In your book, you share a list of foods that can improve your anxiety and Mm -hmm. foods that contribute to it. And I took pictures of both pages. It was, it's super helpful. Were you able to maintain this diet? So full transparency? No, I'm not at that. I'm not at that same level of with the elimination diet. And that was part of it too, was seeing okay, what can we add back in and what can I handle? You know, and what I really ultimately took away from it is that I don't want to drink alcohol. And and now even, well, I'm currently breastfeeding, but, you know, even once I end that, I really do not want to drink alcohol because I think that really impacts anxiety for me. It's lessening my sugar. I, I will always have a sweet tooth, I think a little bit, but it's being mindful of that and really trying to cut down on processed foods too. Those are like my big three takeaways. And I think the message for people is, you know, you don't want to be so rigid with this that it creates its own anxiety, right? Like we've also seen this swing in the other direction with what's called orthorexia, which Mm -hmm. is not actually a diagnosis in the DSM yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes one. It's when someone really gets fixated on 
healthy versus unhealthy foods, good, bad foods, right? Like, and, and that becomes its own anxiety. So it's really learning how to intuitively eat, listen to what the body is telling us feels good, doesn't feel good, but we want to be mindful that it doesn't swing too much the other way too. Very well said. And and you mentioned, quote, in this interview on Teach Me How to Adult podcast, you said that 90% of our serotonin is housed in our gut. And because of the gut-brain connection, if we improve our diet, so will our mental wellness. I was like, that is so fascinating. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, and I think it's really exciting, right? Because it yeah. gives so many different avenues for treatment. I think a lot of people have thought, well, if I'm anxious, you know, then I have to take medication or I have to do therapy. And obviously I'm pro-therapy. I'm a therapist. Yes. But I really do think that there's so many different things that can bring healing for people. I mean, I just tried acupuncture for the first time a few months ago and it was amazing, you know? So part of the book is really showing people like, there are so many different options. Try what works for you. Be open to it. And, you know, changing what we eat and what we put in our bodies is certainly a big pathway to do that. So in your book, you also share that there are three main sharks in our lives that trigger us, which include our own minds. Yeah, that's something that I definitely struggle with the most. Society at large is number two and other people. Now, when it comes to society at large, because I think this is a relatable pressure, you know, the pressure to achieve, the pressure to be perfect, the pressure to always be in control of your life. Can you share a few tips to help us ease our anxious responses? Ooh, yeah, that is a really big one because we can really get so sucked up into this whole hustle culture. And like you mentioned in the beginning, like this girl bossing, right? Which Interestingly, I'm seeing some of my Gen Z clients be like, I am not buying into that. I do not consent, which is which is cool. You know, and I, I think there are a few different approaches to it. One is being mindful of, am I getting sucked into this, right? Really building more awareness to it because a lot of times we have these really negative, harsh thoughts with ourselves and we're not even aware of it. It becomes so internal. It's like tattooed on us and we don't even notice it. So it's really teaching ourselves, what are these unhelpful thoughts that I'm having? And can I hold that just because I have a thought doesn't make it true? Mm. You know, I think that's something really big that we forget. We buy in completely to what the brain is telling us. But one thing I, I say is that the brain is a wild and free agent and it will say and do its own thing. And most of the time it's actually negative and ruminative in nature. And if we are buying into the thoughts that, no one likes me. I'm not successful enough. I'm not good enough. The endless script, we can see how quickly we're going to feel anxious and bad about ourselves. So it's really starting to remember, okay, like maybe I don't actually have to buy into that. And I'm also a really big behaviorist at heart. I think that mindset is important, but I'm not a huge like manifester or even positive thinker. I, those are okay. But really, we have to take action in our lives because the brain is pretty skeptical and the brain will say, mm, I don't really know if you can do that. I don't know if you can do that race. I don't know if you can go on that date. I don't know. So we have to kind of override the system and say, I don't care what you're saying. I'm going to do this anyway. And then once we do it, the brain then says, oh, well, I guess you did do that. I, I guess I have to believe you a little bit more. And so it's really important that we show ourselves and really like a wave, we overcome that wave of anxiety, we ride it out. The problem 
is that so many of us, when we feel that anxiety come up, we want to avoid, we want to run away. So we never get that corrective experience of riding over the wave to see, ooh, I did survive that and the world didn't end. So I love getting people out there and trying those things they're afraid to do because then they actually see their resilience, their capability, and that's when confidence starts to grow. Mm, So we really have to work through them and face them versus being like, oh, I'm just going to be positive. No, no, no. You actually have to pay attention to these voices in your mind and ask yourself, would I talk to my friend like that? You know, (laughs) good examples. Like, no, I I definitely would not. So then why am I being so mean to myself? I think Mm -hmm. it's, it's very relatable. I think a lot of people aren't super nice to themselves, something that my co-host and I struggle with, but we've definitely improved over the years and having each other to keep one another accountable has been really key. We also interviewed Dr. Judd Brewer in the past. He's a neuroscientist. I'm so many great people oh, and growing over here. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. I'm so glad that you're familiar with all these people. Of course you are. It's all in your field. He wrote the book, Unwind Your Anxiety. Is it on your bookshelf? I have it somewhere on my bookshelf and I have Celeste's book too. I've got a few books by Celeste, so I love your list. Keep going. This is awesome. Yeah. So back to Jed Brewer, he talks about how to unwind our anxiety. He, like you, says positivity and willpower is not enough and that uh, anxiety is really a habit loop. It's an unhealthy habit loop. It's a cycle of worry and fear. And he says that we need to work through it. We need to face it. He, he really focuses on mindfulness training, being mindful of those voices, and then also being curious about them. What does this mean? Like, why, why am I talking to myself this way? Like, what happened in my day? So you're working through it versus just being like, oh, I'm just going to block the noise, block the noise. Blocking the noise is, is not working through the noise, right? So no, no. And, you know, I love incorporating distress tolerance skills, which comes from, you know, Marshall Linehan's DBT, Dialectical Behavior Therapy. And it's learning like we can hold the discomfort of anxiety. You know, I think a myth is that we can just make our anxiety go away and we're failing if our anxiety isn't going away. Anxiety may be here to stay. And that's not really I know what people want to hear. But if we can actually accept that I will feel anxious sometimes and that's okay. I can still go out to dinner. I can still, you know, speak it up in that meeting and it doesn't have to stop me from living my life then we've we've taken the w on anxiety and to me that i hope is something people really come away with because if we're just waiting for anxiety to go away we're going to be waiting a long time mm-hmm. and being aware of the triggers so for me and my co-host our triggers are a messy home we cannot focus we get anxious in a messy space so we keep our spaces clean and minimal and so that's yeah. why we live the way we do and mm-hmm. then when it comes to our electronics like our phones we're always being mindful of how much time we spend on them and we're using apps to you know help us manage time on social media and it's a distraction it's it's a huge distraction in our everyday and we want to get that deep focus and today oh my gosh it's so hard to get deep focus you know especially if you're working in a corporation where you know, you have Slack, you have another internal communication channel, and then you've got email and people call you and it's just all over the place. Some people text you that you work with. And it's just like, can we just do one channel? This is really stressful. You know, know. 
So if we can manage those things, it will help us manage other areas of anxiety. So most of my anxiety stems from like mental excess, mental clutter, not being so nice to myself, being stressed with work. And so I'm like, okay, how can I ease that? Well, I can make sure that my environment doesn't have that many distractions in it so that I can reach that level of focus so that I can tell my mind, no, it's okay. You're going to be fine. If you just slowly check things off, you'll get through the day rather than just being overwhelmed. Right. So slow and steady. And I, I struggle with that too. I think the thing that helps contain me when I look at the list and I'm like, I don't even know where to begin Two things. Well, two things I like to do. I like to identify my top three and what are my top three? Like don't pass go till you get through that. And also, you know, one thing that, that really helps me is setting a timer. So I'll put 30 minutes on my clock and no distractions, no social media, no texting, just 30 minutes of focus time. And, and then I'll get, you know, my reward after for getting through that time. But that kind of helps me because otherwise I think it can feel we just have too much floating around and it, it feels like too much. Mm. What are some other strategies that you have? That's so fascinating. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, I, I do love a good to-do list. So that is really big. But but chunking is another really helpful strategy for people. I see people sometimes make this mistake where they have a huge assignment at work and the to-do list will say, you know, make presentation pitch or whatever. Well, that's like a five-hour task potentially for someone. And so I'll either chunk it with time and say, like, spend 30 minutes on this task And then you get that little, that dopamine hit from the checkbox, or you chunk it with a smaller piece and say, make 10 slides, right? And that's way more containing for people than to just go off and give yourself these huge assignments. And then people find they procrastinate, right? If you're procrastinating, it probably means the task is too big for you and you need to chunk it, make it smaller. And the other strategy that I'll share here. We're not that far off from dogs in some ways. We like our little treat too. And mm-hmm. so give yourself that positive reinforcement of, hey, if I get through this, then I can watch that show on Netflix that I like so much, right? Instead of just giving yourself that Netflix show and now we're binging four hours later. You know, those kind of carrots can help motivate us in those moments when it feels hard to sit through and get through that task. Mm. And I'll add to that. I also recommend setting a boundary of how much time you're going to spend on working on a certain project. Say, hey, I'm going to take two hours for this or three hours for this because you'll probably get it done within that time. If you're saying, oh, I have to get this crazy thing done and then I want to watch my show. Well, if you don't set a time goal to get that thing done, you probably won't get to the show. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. That is yeah. such a good tip. Yes. So yeah. that way it doesn't just go totally unhinged. Yeah, which I think happens to most of us because we will take five hours if we have five hours, even if deep down we don't actually have that time. <laughs> so yeah. it's good to do that. It's good to do that. Also, I find the news today, as you mentioned earlier, there's just an overload of information. There's a lot of stress. And I try to limit how often I read the news. Uh, because it gives me an anxiety, especially before bedtime. So I always say, if I'm going to read the news, I'm going to read during the day, a little break. Don't read it right before bed because my mind will spiral. And I know a lot of people can relate to that. Oh, yeah, it really can impact insomnia. And, you know, when people are struggling with insomnia, helpful question we can ask, is there anything I can do about it in this moment? 
often not, right? Like we can't have a business meeting at 2 a.m. with people. So saying to ourselves like, hey, there's nothing I can do about this right now. And so not reading the news before bed is huge. You know, I, I talk about this idea of empowered acceptance because, you know, we do want to stay aware of what's going on in the world. I think sometimes we have this reaction of like, let me put my hands over my ears, la la la, I don't want to know about it. And I think that's not always so great because that really can perpetuate these problems. If we don't know what's going on, how can we do anything about it, right? So we do need the acceptance of the reality of the world that we live in. And I would argue we need to be empowered in our approach too, that we're not just passive bystanders to what's going on, but we actually do something about it in our big and small ways, right? So that we feel like we're a part of the solution and not just apathetic to these things that are giving so many of us anxiety. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In your book, you talk about how sometimes a lot of people, they feel shy about revealing that they're stressed or they're anxious. A lot of people will put up a front in many ways because they're like, oh, everyone else seems perfect. So I shouldn't be vulnerable and share that I feel anxious. And you share the story of a client of yours. His name was Jordan. And you talk about how he came to your office and it seemed like he had everything under control. He was so perfect and confident. And then one day you said, hmm, things aren't adding up here. You know, I think you would ask them maybe one question. It's like, you know, what's happening? Is there something, you know, wrong? Is there something you're dealing with? And you realize that he was a people pleaser. And that he was struggling with anxiety because he always felt like he had to make everyone happy around him. And I was a people pleaser at one point in my life. And I learned later on that being a people pleaser is actually, obviously, it's hard on yourself, but it's also not very nice <laughs> to other people to be a people pleaser. So I'm, I'm hoping you can share how you helped work him through this habit of people pleasing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm glad that you pulled out that client example. And I should note too, for, for people listening, they're all de-identified clients. So, you know, confidentiality was like top priority in all this, but, you know, to pull from Jordan's story, people pleasing, it really is a form of anxiety because we are wanting to prevent our own discomfort of saying no to somebody. You know, so many of us are so afraid that if we say no, someone's going to get mad at us. A lot of times when people struggle with people pleasing, it's connected to this anger response. We're very afraid of burning a bridge. That may be because of our own relationships with our caregivers growing up. Or, you know, a lot of us, I think a lot of women especially, we're so socialized to to just be nice, right? And let's keep everything calm. Let's keep everybody happy. And almost a mentality of like, if someone gives you an opportunity, you should be grateful for that opportunity. You should say yes to everything that comes your way because you never know when something else could happen. So there's almost a scarcity mindset attached to it too, I think for a lot of folks. So really it's starting to, and we mentioned distress tolerance a little while ago, learning to get uncomfortable with, or excuse me, getting comfortable being uncomfortable and getting comfortable saying no and seeing, okay, people either respect that and it's a really great corrective experience, or if people don't respect it and people give us, you know, rudeness or pushback or make us feel insecure for setting a boundary, then maybe we need to reevaluate that relationship. And was that relationship just about what we could give to the person 
rather than them appreciating who we are as people. So a lot of times people are afraid to enter into that for you to see like what will happen with those relationships. But I think eventually people get tired of being a doormat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then by being a people pleaser, we end up struggling, right? So I... Oh my goodness. I wasn't necessarily always a yes person, but I didn't love confrontation. You know, in, in my childhood, people would always get mad at me. And even till today, people get mad at me. And I always say, I never get mad. And most of them are like, yeah, you never get mad. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, because I'm scared that if I voice my opinion sometimes that they're going to always win. So I'm like, there's no point. So I, I've been there even in my childhood. It's like, well, there's no winning. So I might as well just not even speak up. But that's also very unhealthy. And you can speak up in a nice way and communicate how you feel. There's a different way of saying like, oh, you know, you did this. It's like, you made me feel this way when this happened versus saying that they did something wrong. It's just, this is how I felt in that scenario, right? So it's changing how we communicate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's such a beautiful way to put it. And and I do think that's something that many of us, myself included, like we can all work on is, is voicing that. And, you know, if we do get that aggressiveness from somebody, what really helped me in reframing it is that's something going on for that person, you know, that they're having that reaction. And then I get to choose what I do with that, right? I can either walk away from that if it becomes unhealthy, you know, I can choose how I approach it instead of personalizing it as like, oh, I'm the bad person kind of thing, right? So yeah, I, I think that's something that we can all get a little bit more courage with to voice. And and I think we'd actually feel a lot closer with each other if we did do that. I think we yes. live in a very polite society in a lot of ways where we're just so afraid to like share our truth. And I think it even contributes to this like loneliness epidemic that we're seeing because it's just a lot of small talk and memes and gifts with people. Mm-hmm. There's a friendliness, but there's not always a deep closeness. And I think a lot of us are starved for that. Absolutely. And I find that when I do speak up, for example, or when we do speak up in those scenarios where we're with someone and maybe we're disagreeing or someone's upset, you can feel so much closer to that person, a friend, a partner, family member, after you both voice each other's opinions. Sometimes it can become more like, wow, like, so glad we had that vulnerable talk because now I feel so much closer to you because now you know how I feel and now I understand a little bit more about how you feel. It's about being calm in those moments. If you can be calm in those moments, you can, there's so much value to gain. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. To really like let ourselves be seen. And I think there is such a vulnerability to it. I'm, I just finished reading a, a great book called You Will Find Your People by Lane Moore. She's another person you should have on your show. Wow. And she writes a lot about how millennials, especially we're so lacking many of us, like really close friendships. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a large part of that is because we're not being vulnerable because there is always the possibility you could show yourself to someone and they don't always respond well. That's, I think, data we don't want to get. But I think on the whole, you know, people do appreciate that vulnerability and that willingness to open up. So I'm curious, outside of people-pleasing, what are some other symptoms or unhealthy habits that show up sometimes? And why are setting boundaries so important to us? Mm, yeah, well, the people pleasing is huge. And there's a really fun quiz in the book that shows when what people pleasing is going on. Sometimes it can also look like some of those tendencies within OCD, really engaging in some compulsive behaviors, whether that's 
overchecking a lot. I see this a lot relationally too, that people don't realize sometimes is a form of relationship OCD, but it's asking our loved ones, do you really love me? Are you going to leave me? And that can really create kind of a toxic cycle in relationships. And then for others, it's avoidance when anxiety comes up, right? Uh, It's that message we tell ourselves, I'm just not ready yet. And that can look in so many different ways, but it's essentially postponing our lives and letting anxiety win. And so, you know, that's where one, I think boundaries are really key if we are finding we're engaging in people pleasing strategies. And also in our relationships too, I, I teach in the book that I'm actually pro ultimatum, which people are often like, ultimatums are so bad. Like, oh, what wow. are you talking about? But I, I'll say this, I think ultimatums are essentially clear communication of your boundaries, right? If you're, Let's say you're in a relationship with somebody and you really want to get married to them. And they keep saying, eh, I don't know, maybe. If you were to say, hey, let's give this six months. Let's put our all into this. And if at six months, you're still not at a place where you feel ready to get married to me, I am communicating to you that I now need to move on for my own well-being. That's clear communication, in my opinion, than ghosting on the person or resenting the heck out of them. And then that six months comes up and you disappear. Hey, ultimatums are are clearly communicating. So that, I think, is something really big that people can do. And it's also learning to live with the uncertainty of life. You know, it's learning that anxiety, it wants so much for us to have control. And it's actually learning that we only have so much control in our lives. And if we can actually accept that, we can find a lot more fulfillment in life than to be, you know, constantly fretting about all these potential things that may or may not happen. Mm -hmm. On that note, communicating your needs is so important, but also taking time to reflect on what your needs are and what your goals are is also important because I think one of the biggest fears that my social network deals with is fear of the future. You know, what is that really is anxiety, right? It's like, what what's going to happen in the next five years? Where am I going to be? What do I actually want? Like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, well, let's take time to figure out what we want and where we want to be. But yeah, some things are out of our control, as you said. So it's, 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 let's just try to control as much as, or what, what we can in terms of what really brings us the most happiness, right? Well, and and I'm a big advocate of taking those steps in your life, even with it being messy, with it not being perfect, because I think with anxiety, we want things to be perfect. We want it to be just right. And there really isn't such a thing, you know? I mean, take, for example, I just had my first baby. There are so many times I could have said, it's not a good time. It's And I said that for years, it's not a good time, you know? And then it got to a point where like, well, there's never going to be a good time, you know? And anxiety is learning how to live with it and to say, it's going to be here along for the ride. It's going to be messy. I mean, even during our conversation, I've been hearing my little son screaming in the background and let's hope my husband's doing okay with it, right? Like it's just messy and that's okay, right? Which I think is interesting as we're having this conversation about, you know, like minimalism, right? Like how do you find that, what we call the dialectic, the both and of Mm. still having like order and, and cleanliness where we can and embracing the mess sometimes and learning to live in that too. Yes. We always say that this life is imperfectly perfect. It's completely 
it's just a work in progress. It's it's a lifelong journey. We constantly have to work at it, manage it. And that's why I love in your book, basically the main overarching theme is that we should ride the waves rather than constantly swim against them when it comes to our anxieties. And you share how swimming through our anxieties can be a real opportunity for self-growth. And I found that really fascinating. Can you share a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, I talk a lot about mentally treading, you know, and a lot of us, we are, we're fighting ourselves, we're trying to make the anxiety go away, you know, and, and I think in doing that, even though it has the best of intentions, it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And it's really kind of about this counterintuitive approach of embracing what I call the inner otter of laying back and saying, you know what, this water may be cold, like things are maybe not how I want them to be exactly. But here I am, let me enjoy the ride. Mm -hmm. And I think we can start to shift our perspective because we can't always control our environment or our circumstances. Things will happen external to us. What we do have control over is our perspective, our response to those things. So we can choose, am I going to fight myself and wear myself out? Or am I going to honor it, you know, and lay back and embrace it? And in that, I think it's much more restorative. We don't get so worn out. And we learn how to sit with discomfort a lot more so that we can actually enjoy our lives more and what's going on around us and be present for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I interviewed Light Watkins recently, and he mentioned he's a meditation teacher. He says that we should swim through our thoughts. And I found, I was like, oh, you two have a lot of synergy there. <laughs> True. And maybe meditation, would you say that meditation is really helpful for anxiety because it's it challenges us to face our thoughts? Yes, it does. I'm a huge advocate for mindfulness. I think it's so important, whether that's sitting someplace or just going out for a mindful walk without music, for example, and just nature bathing a little bit, taking in what you're seeing. I think that is so, so healing for us to just be with ourselves. So yeah, I will advocate for mindfulness all day. And and I do think the waves in the ocean is a nice metaphor of that. You see that with John Kabat-Zinn. He talks about the waves with mindfulness too, and because they do really ride up and ride down. And I think if we can remember that it is like a wave rather than a constant surge, that can help us in learning how to cope with the anxiety. Mm, very well said. So to start to close today, I have three rapid fire questions for you. I'm excited. So <laughs> what is one action our listeners can take today to ease their anxieties? Oh boy. Well, first thing I'll say get your blood work done because well, they miss this in treating their anxiety. And a lot of times we can have imbalances in our body. Take, for example, many people are vitamin D deficient. And there's been a lot of research to show that that really contributes to anxiety and depression symptoms. So listen to the data your body is trying to tell you and get your blood work done. Wow. I love that one. It's very actionable. (laughs) What are you hoping your readers gain from reading your book, Generation Anxiety? Oh my gosh. Well, I hope people pick it up. And, you know, the main thing that I want people to take away is that it's not learning. It's not about putting your life on pause. It's not about letting your anxiety win and dictate the the shots on your life. It's about accepting that anxiety is is here sometimes, and you can still go on and lead a meaningful life. Mm, Very well said. Now, the last question is, can you leave our listeners with a piece of wisdom to help them swim through their anxieties? Oh, well, I want to come back to empowered acceptance, except that you do feel anxious sometimes. That's okay. It's, it's not comfortable, but it is okay. 
accept what we are seeing going on in this world, accept what you are seeing happen in your life, because all of it is valuable data Mm. and be empowered in what you do with it. Don't just be a passive bystander to your life or see acceptance as apathy. Instead, be empowered by being an active participant in our society, being a part of the change you want to see, and taking those steps in your own life too to make those changes. So empowered acceptance, use that in your life when you are feeling those waves of anxiety come at you. I feel like I just had an amazing therapy session with you. You really put me at ease in this conversation. I've learned so much. Thank you so much. This is fantastic. And I know our listeners are probably thinking, how how can I connect with you? So how can our listeners uh, connect with you? I know you have your own practice and gosh, you, you do a lot of things. Oh, well, Generation Anxiety comes out September 19th. So be sure to pre-order or order it wherever you like to buy your books. I'm at drlaurencook.com. I speak with a lot of companies and universities. So if you want to bring this conversation to your team, let me know. We also host the Brain Health Book Club. So every month we bring in a new book relating to psychology and personal development. We actually had Celeste as one of our books that we chose and she spent some time with us and yeah, follow on Instagram and TikTok too. I love making the good uh, mental health dance meme every now and then. Oh, that's so great. Oh, fantastic. And if I'm coming to the LA area anytime soon, I will definitely send you a line because it'd be so nice to meet you. You're so lovely. And I've been excited for our conversations for some time. Oh, (laughs) well, the feeling is mutual. I'm fangirling over you, Kelly. So I'm so glad we got to talk. And if I'm in Toronto, which I hope I I would love to visit. I will definitely be pinging you. You definitely have a tour guide. Well, thanks so much. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope that this conversation has left you feeling in a state of ease. And if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lauren Cook and pre-order her book, Generation Anxiety, please check out the links in the show notes. And as always, you can follow us on social media on Instagram and Facebook at Millennial Minimalist and learn more about us, the podcast, and our closet decluttering courses on our website at mastersimplicity.com. And I should note that we now have a pre-recorded closet decluttering course in addition to our live courses if you prefer to watch at your leisure. And to close, I want to share a quick update about the podcast. Starting today through the fall, we are now going back to our bi-weekly schedule, releasing a new episode every other Monday, including guest interviews and one-on-one conversations between Lauren and me. We have a ton of exciting guests this fall, and we are looking forward to sharing in these conversations with you. And lastly, I want to thank you all for listening in and share a special thanks to those of you who have taken a moment to write us a kind five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We've received a few new ones recently, and we couldn't be more grateful for your words. You really inspire us to keep going, and your words really help us bring on exciting guests like Dr. Cook. So thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for our next one-on-one conversation in two weeks. Bye-bye.